think we are entering a very, very dangerous period where the collectivist authoritarian mentality, governments using excessive force, which we would never have conceived of a few years ago, is ramping up and we have to resist it. We have to say no. Hi, I'm Evelyn Ray. Welcome to The Cauldron Pool Show. Today I am joined with Rowan Dean. He's the editor of The Spectator magazine Australia. He's the host of Outsiders on Sky News Australia. He is a columnist, he is a commentator and he's an all-round good bloke um, and I feel super privileged to have you joining me on the show today. Thanks, Evelyn. Great to be with you. Looking forward to it. Now, during, uh, I guess, the last few years, there have been many people that I've respected, many people that I've really sort of gone to for not necessarily advice, but for information. And you've always been that consistent person for me. I feel like you're fairly uh, objective, impartial, and you just sort of cut the fat straight off the meat, which is something I've always appreciated. And um, over the last few years, the the list of people that I go to is dwindling. It's getting a lot smaller. It's like we're sort of chipping away at this piece of wood and it's dwindling down to a little stick, but you have remained there. So I'm really excited to get your thoughts on a few things that I um, am interested in, in particular, uh, the latest federal election here in Australia. That was a bit of a whirlwind um, and you had some really interesting commentary afterwards about it, which I wholeheartedly agreed with, which was the Liberal Party deserved it, basically. They had it coming and I sort of said, you know, they spent the last three years alienating their voter base all whilst trying to please a group of people that are never likely going to vote for them. So I'd love to, you know, hear your thoughts on the latest election and why you think it went the way that it did. Sure, Evelyn. Well, <clears throat> basically, I was not at all surprised uh, that the election went the way it went. Uh, during the 2019 election, for example, I was convinced that uh, Morrison would win. I just could not see how anyone would ever vote for Bill Shorten. And uh, Morrison was fairly new in the job then. Yes, he'd made mistakes that the left thought were mistakes, you know, going on holiday, which I thought is a pretty standard thing for a guy with a family to do. So they were all up, up, leaping up and down around those sorts of issues, which I thought were non-issues. And I thought that following the kind of uh, wishy-washy years of Malcolm Turnbull that Scott Morrison did seem to have uh, a few conservative instincts there um, and that that would carry him through, which it did. Uh, he was a relatively unknown factor and most uh, <clears throat> importantly, this was the decisive thing for me in the 2019 election. Uh, although I was always against <clears throat> the Paris Agreement and thought that uh, that was a, a great betrayal, which it was, nonetheless, Morrison made it clear he wasn't going to go any further and that that was it. It was done and dusted. We did that then. We're not going to do anything more from now on. Leave it as it is. Leave the settings as they are and away we go. That struck me as the only pragmatic way to approach the situation. And I thought, well, this guy's going to be good because he recognises the folly of going full in on the climate change uh, ideal. He's kind of bought and supported Australia a bit of space and that'll all be fine. So I thought that commitment to not go any further than the Paris Agreement was, was a critical factor that most people in Australia would go, yeah, you know, fair suck of the pineapple or whatever, yeah, let's go with that, mm. which is what they did. So when fast forward uh, two years later, uh, Scott Morrison went to Glasgow, mm. 
mm. uh, and stood alongside Boris Johnson, who, you know, only a few hours mm. ago himself was struggling to survive. Um, I knew it was over. It had to be over for the simple reason that you just can't treat the Australian electorate like complete mugs. Now, mm. I wrote an editorial in The Spectator Australia in early uh, last year where I was kind of wrestling with the concept of, you know, the pressure's on there for net zero, but why don't the Libs use this as a really clever way to bring in nuclear power? Um, and the AUKUS agreement had just been signed, and that was, okay, this is good. The, the Christopher Pine and Malcolm Turnbull's idiotic French deal was, you know, sunk. Uh, and here's a, here's a reasonable approach. We could get nuclear weapons from the Americans. Uh, we could bring in our own nuclear industry. Uh, we could uh, use this as a way to galvanise uh, Australian energy, to galvanise Australian manufacturing, build it all around this concept. Okay, here we've got the nuclear power. Let's build a nuclear energy. Oh, and by the way, guess what, folks? It'll get us to net zero. So I thought this is how you win the election. Dead simple. Wedge Labor, split Labor and the Greens in two uh, simply by, by playing the, the nuclear card. Now, um, the logic of that and the ability that that then meant to say, Greenies, you've got nowhere to go, you know, uh, we've got the solution. Now, part of my thinking, Evelyn, which had led to this was, um, I don't know if you'd seen on Outsiders, I interviewed a couple of times, uh, and we'll be interviewing her again this week, actually, uh, a, a former Extinction Rebellion activist from the UK, great name, her name is Zion Lights. <laughs> and uh, I'd interviewed her a couple of years ago when she had literally um, gone from being one of the leaders of Extinction Rebellion in London at the time when they were all causing mayhem and havoc, gluing themselves to Buckingham Palace gates or whatever they were doing. She was one of the leaders, not just a, a supporter, one of the leaders of that movement. And she had gone, uh, done an interview with, funnily enough, my boss at The Spectator, Andrew Neil, who was also a BBC presenter. And Andrew had simply said to her, why aren't you looking at nuclear? Now, this is a young girl, early 20s, very intelligent, educated in the British system, uh, not so dissimilar to our system, where she had never even heard of nuclear. So she went, what are you talking about? Went off by herself, investigated it, and came back a complete convert. So there's a young 20-something-year-old wow. girl who goes, hang on, I care about the environment. I want to get to net zero. This is what I've devoted my last few years to. And there's this magic card here called nuclear mm. and everyone's ignoring it. So she left, she quit Extinction Rebellion, became a pro-nuclear activist for climate change. Now, this mm. for me was a critical thing. And there are others who you'll find who, who similarly have gone down that path. In fact, it's very easy to convince younger climate activists that nuclear is the way to go because they don't have the stigma of the 80s and sure yeah. they've watched the tv show chernobyl but you know yeah. they don't have that uh, that whole sort of thing from australia of the 70s and 80s so they go yeah this is obvious so to me the smart thing to do in the run-up to the 2022 election was to wedge labor on and the grains on the nuclear issue and uh to have something to fight for and be promising net zero at the same time. And I drew the analogy with John Howard when he, you know, was struggling a bit. He went to the election with the GST, which everyone knew was a big ask. Mm -hmm. 
But because he was so passionate about it, people went, hang on, this must be in the nation's interest because you'd be insane to put this forward if it weren't. So mm. he got the respect of the public with an issue that up until then had been poisoned to touch. So I could see a direct analogy. Why wouldn't the coalition get, make, do, make nuclear their kind of version of GST, give them something new to fight for, wedge labour, mm. boom, job done, walk away, landslide, win. So when Scott Morrison did the complete opposites and went for net zero, but at the same time said, oh, no, 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 there's no way we would do nuclear unless we had consensus with the Labour Party and the Greens, at that point I knew this guy is a goose. This guy is clueless. <laughs> this guy does not deserve to be our leader. He does not understand politics. He does not understand the Australian people. He does not un understand the pressing issues that face this country. This guy is everything that the, his critics have said. He's shallow. He, he, he's a flim-flam marketing man. And believe you, I've met many in my time uh, in advertising. He blows whichever way the wind goes. Uh, he cannot possibly win the election. Long answer to your question, but there you have it. <laughs> Yeah, it's really interesting you mentioned nuclear because leading into the election, I think there were only a few of even the minor parties who mentioned it. I think One Nation spoke about, you know, the want or the desire for introducing nuclear energy. But, yeah, you don't really hear much about it. And it does seem to be the answer to everybody's problems, no matter what side of the fence you sit on, yet it no one really wants to touch it. Do you think it's sort of what you mentioned? Do you think it's the stigma? that was sort of around in the 70s and 80s and the whole Chernobyl and how it can be super dangerous. Do you think that's the only reason why Australian politicians don't want to go there or do you think there's something else? No, there's something even more toxic than Chernobyl, Evelyn, and it's called focus groups and it's called the Crosby-Texter method of approaching elections. And uh, having worked for many, many years in advertising and sat through so many focus groups, I can't tell you, I have zero respect for them. They are garbage. And uh, garbage in, garbage out. The coalition has allowed itself to be led by the nose, by focus groups, particularly under Scott Morrison, but also under Turnbull. Um, and uh, that way it lies just oblivion. You will always end up nowhere because focus groups, the way they work is... Uh, Basically, questions are put to a group of people who uh, have nothing better to do, who've been paid 10 or 20 bucks to sit around and get some free pizza and mm. a couple of soft drinks and, and big note themselves for a couple of hours by feeling important by answering questions. Um, and the stuff they churn out with is basically just regurgitated uh, pub talk from several years ago. And they try and sound important. Uh, <clears throat> and you have all these boffins sitting there taking notes as if they're listening to the, you know, the most amazing uh, revelations. And your focus group will always just tell you what you already know. So you have, a, if a government is led by focus groups, it will end up in a nowhere place where it can't make any decisions, it can't go forward, uh, it, it, it is completely locked in. That is why uh, the nuclear issue was abandoned by the coalition, nothing to do with the reality. As we're already seeing now, it appears, may, I hope I'm not being overly optimistic, but it appears listening to Peter Dutton and Angus Taylor and the appointment of Ted O'Brien to the climate roles, uh, it does appear that the coalition are now going to use what they should have done six months ago, use the nuclear issue to wedge Labor. If they do that, which they certainly should, 
if they do that, they will be back in power in 2025 for the simple reason that uh, what Labor is now committed to coming out of this election is completely unachievable. They are committed to two mutually exclusive propositions, one action on climate change, the other reducing the cost of living. These two things are polar opposites. You mm. have to pick one or the other. You don't get both. Uh, they're trying to have both, which means within three years we will have pretty serious problems in this country economically. Uh, mm. We will have, uh, you know, people who can't heat their homes, can't uh, uh, <clears throat> look after mm. themselves on the poverty line, uh, and we will see a lot of suffering, mm. uh, unfortunately. And uh, the party that can offer a solution to genuinely getting down energy prices will be the party that wins the next election. My prediction is that by uh, within two and a half years, the phrase net zero will be about as popular as the phrase pink bats, and you'll have politicians, uh, you know, attaching themselves to net zero as readily as they attach themselves to that concept. Uh, and you will see all sorts of reasons from the Labor Party as they try to walk away from net zero and, and make all sorts of excuses uh, but the Liberals have a golden opportunity now, which it looks like they're going to take, which is to say, we've got the solution. It's nuclear. Away we go. Mm. Yeah, I think the comforting fact, and I guess the silver lining in all of this is stupidity can't sustain itself. Um, and so it's only a matter of time before it implodes. You know, that's just what's going to happen. And, but it's, it's hard in the interim to sort of wait for that to come to fruition. But I think there is an opportunity here for the right thing to eventually come forth. I just hope it does. There has been talk that um, they're going to go the other way, the Liberal Party. I did hear I, what you're saying to me right now is music to my ears, but I did hear on the other end that they that after the Liberal Party lost, they all got together and had a meeting and they were all saying we need to go more green. The voter base has said climate, climate, climate maybe where we need to go down that path. And I sort of thought they're just going to continue to alienate their own voter base. It's just going to be this awful situation. So what you're saying is fantastic. I hope that that's something Same that here. they do. Fingers crossed. <laughs> um, otherwise, I think, yeah, we're looking at um, potentially two terms of damage would be, I'm not sure how we would come back from that, Rowan, maybe a bit like Venezuela, how they're going well, to come exactly. back. <laughs> well, well, you're right, Evelyn. If 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 the Liberals and the, the worst thing that happened uh, last week or this week was um, the, the election of David Littleproud to the Nats, which is so counterintuitive and stupid. Uh, Barnaby Joyce, although I, uh, you know, was furious when he agreed to Scott Morrison's net zero, um, and his argument was, well, it's better to be in government implementing it than out of government. Well, that really worked out well, didn't you? Didn't it? Because you're mm. out of government and you're out of the top job. So that was a really dumb strategy. But nonetheless, um, Barnaby Joyce has since gone on. <laughs> it's amazing how an election uh, clears the air of what people genuinely think and what they say mm. in the run-up to the election. Barnaby Joyce has now been on uh, Ben Fordham's uh, show saying, oh, no, no, yeah. no, no, I failed. I failed on that one. Great. Thanks, Barnaby. Um, mm. uh, so we've now, we're now seeing the war that has to take place within the centre-right of politics taking place. And you can't have this fractured uh, Liberal National Party. Well, both parties are the same. They're both split down the middle between the lovies, the bedwetters on one side and the Conservatives on the other. 
the only way that this can turn out well is for the Conservatives to dominate both parties. Um, mm. And John Howard managed this, this lie about the broad church. You hear this lie about the broad church. It's nonsense. John Howard managed to contain a broad church because he basically was a conservative who surrounded himself predominantly with conservatives, but allowed a little bit of kind of leftist, uh, your Fred Cheney's or whoever in there to kind of, uh, you know, a little bit of window dressing. The idea that under Howard, the so-called, you know, the wets, the bedwetters, as we now know, now know them, held uh, the power that they held under Turnbull or Morrison is, is it's just simply not true. Uh, so the role of Dutton, Peter Dutton, and, uh, you know, well, the role of Peter Dutton, basically, unfortunately, he doesn't have an opposite number in the Nats. The role is to keep a conservative party that allows a few of the, you know, a bit of window dressing. You can have your Simon Birmingham trotting off to, you know, international <laughs> meetings. That's fine. Do that. But otherwise, it should be a conservative-led party. If it does that, it will win the next election. Mm. If it doesn't, it will lose next election and it will basically disappear. Yep. No, I, I'm I'm really hopeful that that's what happens because, like you, that's the only way that I can foresee them coming back from this. Now, what are your thoughts on Dutton as the face of the Liberal Party? Because, um, like, I, I personally don't see an issue with it at all, but I've had a few people say that they're worried because he's – um, the face of it, he's not liked by enough Australians. And that in itself could be something that sees a Liberal Party not come back into power. Do you think that's a non-issue or something yeah, of concern? I think it's irrelevant. I think it's irrelevant. Uh, the people who say that are the people who are not going to vote for him anyway. Um, uh, the, uh, and it shows how weak, or it shows two things. It shows how scared Labor is of uh, Dutton, that Tanya Plibersek had to come out and, you know, do the whole Voldemort thing. Um, <laughs> uh, it, 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 it shows they're scared of him, but it also shows they don't really know yet how to try and tackle him. Mm -hmm. um, they, uh, you know, John Gorton was not exactly Brad Pitt, uh, and yet he was a popular Prime Minister of Australia. You don't have to have uh, matinee idol looks to, to be a <laughs> successful politician if if you stand for something. And mm. ultimately the public want politicians who stand for something. Uh, yeah. I think Dutton is by far, there's no one who comes close uh, within the Liberal Party to being able to lead it at this point in time. Um, but I think that uh, he, the temptation he will face is to be dragged to the left under the lie that this is what the broad church leadership requires. Um, I hope he doesn't. I think he's, he's, uh, he, his basic instincts are correct. Uh, we shall see. I think the, um, the pressures that come on the leader, more, far more so these days than back in the days of John Howard, the pressures from all the kind of, uh, you know, other forces outside the party, the donors, the people, uh, you know, the so-called uh, research groups, and I mentioned before, Crosby Text, all that sort of stuff, mm. uh, all the um, so-called experts uh, puts a lot of pressure on a leader to move to the left. I'm hopeful that that can resist that, mm. but we shall see.
Yeah, sometimes the noise can get a bit much, but hopefully he can just, you know, put some blinkers on and some headphones in and just you know, go follow those basic instincts that you sort of mentioned. But you sort of, when I sort of asked you whether you were surprised with the election, one of the first things that you sort of went into was the climate debate. But it's interesting. I, I have never really been a huge fan of uh, Scott Morrison. As a Christian myself, I find it really hard to respect somebody who is so outspoken about things but then contradicts it with action. So it's something that I, I've i never really personally, as I said, like been a huge fan of his. But I thought any prime minister who was copped with the bushfires, with the floods, with the COVID response, with all of that was going to have a hard time. Um, so would you say that the main reason you think uh, the Liberal Party lost at the federal election was because of the climate or do you think it was a combination with COVID response and all of the other things I mentioned as well? Uh, yeah, I think it was definitely COVID played a huge role in it and the reason being is that, uh, and I think it's a, it, it's very similar, there are parallels to the climate change issue. On COVID, uh, Scott Morrison abrogated leadership uh, the most cowardly uh, display I think I've ever seen in Australian politics where he basically said, I don't want to get tarnished with this, so uh, I'm going to create this thing called the National Cabinet. We're going to spread the uh, responsibility and the blame, i.e. the blame, all around. Uh, I'll step back from it. I'll appear to be riding above it. Um, that might have looked good on paper at the beginning, but uh, what we ended up with was uh, the outrageous uh, Dan Andrews and um, Palaszczuk over the top draconian police measures, uh, throwing little old ladies to the ground, pepper spraying, all that stuff, um, which we should never forget and we must not be allowed to forget. The most, you know, pregnant women, uh, you know, women being throttled by police officers, women being dragged out of cars. I mean, the most disgusting stuff. The world was horrified by what, by what was going on. Not one word from our Prime Minister at any stage over mm. 18 months, not one word of condemnation about that behaviour. That, to me, is just, you, you mentioned Christianity, I don't I'm not going to go into uh, the form of prime minister's religious beliefs, but just anyone with a basic conscience and a leadership, uh, the, the burden of leadership on them to have avoided responding to that, to me, was despicable. I don't think there's a low enough uh, adjective to describe how cowardly was his behaviour during the COVID mm. period. Equally, how disgusting was the behaviour of the premiers. Now, it got even worse. Not only did um, Scott Morrison avoid uh, even just speaking up. Now, people say, oh, I've, I've made this point several times before, and people say, oh, no, he couldn't because it's a state issue, not a, yeah. not a, uh, a federal issue. Rubbish, rubbish. Can you imagine John Howard sitting back? or Bob Hawke, for that matter, sitting back sure. and going, you know, remember Bob Hawke, any bum who, you know, he, he, he told people who couldn't, you know, bosses, you can't, you know, not give yeah. someone a holiday today. Uh, John Howard spoke up forcefully on, on cultural or moral issues, sparingly, but forcefully, mm. um, and any leader does. Uh, so to not speak up was of itself 
unacceptable and, and made him unworthy of the office. But secondly, and this is where it really, really, I think, lost him the election, was so many people suffered, and I know many of them, because I was outspoken on television and in The Spectator against mandatory vaccination. Uh, that kind of meant I attracted a lot of emails and people writing to me who were suffering, either lost their job or had to hand in their job or couldn't do this or couldn't see their kids or whatever it was because of the mandatory vaccination requirements. And a lot of people suffered an enormous lot of emotional harm, financial harm, uh, you know, mental distress. Uh, we had the excellent um, Graham Hood, the Qantas pilot. We had him on Outsiders mm -hmm. uh, who did a terrific video midway through uh, the initial mandatory vaccinations explaining why for him, you know, it was he just couldn't do it. He'd been a pilot for X number of years. And uh, as far as he was concerned, he wasn't prepared to take the risk of the vaccine. Um, for the prime minister of the day to then stand up and he did speak and he said, oh, no, 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 vaccines aren't mandatory in this mm -hmm. nation. No, 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 no. Oh, sure, a couple of businesses might demand it, but it's not mandatory in this nation. Mm -hmm. What a disgraceful, cowardly mm -hmm. lie. Uh, yeah. The people of Australia who suffered so much to have that smug, uh, sanctimonious, outright lie delivered to them, to me, uh, was it reinforced the lie of net zero, the say one thing to get elected, then do the opposite. But to be so brazenly, cowardly and two-faced, mm. uh, to me, meant the guy had no hope of being re-elected and mm. I, I never for a second entertained the idea that he would be re-elected because I just don't think I, the, the degree of suffering by so many people across the nation who don't have a voice uh, the only time they get a voice is at the ballot box I knew yeah. there was no way they were going to put him back yeah. in no way. Yeah. Not when you've been kicked in the teeth like that. Uh, and then mm. furthermore, you you add on to that and the excuse that we always hear from, from the die in the wool libs is, oh, no, no, no. You know, our job was to look after after people who'd lost their jobs through JobKeeper. And Josh Frydenberg did an amazing job, spent a trillion dollars or whatever it was. Well, again, I would argue that that was completely unnecessary. And I'm not arguing that, by the way, Evelyn, with hindsight, I was arguing that in March and April and May of 2020, do not spend any money on this, reopen the borders, otherwise we're going to be hit with a huge bill. And when Job Seeker and Job Keeper first came out, that night I was on television saying, this is a mistake, we should not be spending this money. And so it just turned out to be wasted money. Uh, it was not the virus that caused people to lose their jobs. It was the state premiers and the lack of federal leadership that led to people losing their jobs and quite rightly led to the Liberals losing the election. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It was a really devastating time for many people. And I think the trauma um, of losing a job, losing a livelihood, not knowing if you can put a roof over your kid's head, um, you know, clothes on their back, that is something that I think we're yet to see the long-term consequences of. Um, I think mental health, like there's a whole range of things that is going to happen. And it's interesting. I was interviewed during the last few years by a number of um 
uh, international sort of news shows asking me my perspective on Australia. And it was always the same. Is this really happening over there? Like, is this real? Are we getting the news right? Um, and I used to, I used to have to say that is correct, but it's actually worse. And then I would explain we're not allowed five kilometers out of our home. You're not allowed to go to a funeral. And people just could not believe that this was happening and not only happening, but happening in Australia because our reputation is to be a very tenacious, very strong, she'll be right, you know, hard yakka sort of, um, you know, reputation. And we lo- we lost our clout, Rowan. We lost our international sort of clout. Um, and I think we have sort of been mocked by many people from across the globe for our response to COVID. But I, I served in the police for 12 years in Australia. And it, similarly to you, I, I spoke out um, against the uh, response from the police and I spoke out. And so I received a lot of information from people as well with one, their treatment from the police and two, from police officers who were really struggling, um, having to be faced with these sorts of things. And then police officers who were losing their jobs because of the vaccine mandates. There was one police officer who reached out to me and said that they had an exemption to not wear a mask because they had um, had damage done to their face. And instead of the police supporting the doctor's exemption, the police then said, well, maybe now, maybe because of this, you're not fit to be a police officer and drove them out. And so I, I just think the damage that has been done with the relationship between law enforcement and the police, uh, I mean, sorry, relationship with law enforcement and civilian, and then relationship with civilian and politician, relation like trust with the media. There's just been so many fractures with so many crucial relationships that basically form the functionality of a society. And so I, I don't know what this means going forward. Do you have any thoughts on what you think the long-term effects of all of these things is going to lead to? Yeah. Uh, look, Evelyn, I think that's a brilliant, uh, you summed up the situation brilliantly. And again, uh, it is the failure of national leadership that allowed that to occur. Um, you get splits within any society uh, all the time over various things. Um, and it is the f- most important, fundamental, almost the sole job of a national leader to make sure that those uh, fractures are healed as quickly as possible, that, uh, uh, that you bring people together and all those sorts of cliches. Um, and they sound like cliches, but actually a good leader will do it and will manage to do it. And the time to do that with COVID uh, was there and it would have been very easy for Scott Morrison to step up and say, this has got to stop, we're not doing this anymore. Um, Call the National Cabinet in and say, you guys stand your police officers down, I'm not going to be the leader of a country where they throw pregnant women against the wall or whatever else doing. Interestingly, Evelyn, uh, I don't know if you saw in Sydney yesterday, the um, bloke called Mr Bondi, who was the... uh, uh, guy in his red speedos who the police tackled to the ground early on in see. the pandemic. Uh, and, uh, you know, there was footage at the time that went all around the world. Here's this typical Aussie in his red speedos, all these burly police officers in masks. This bloke's just walking down to Bondi Beach, four places without a mask, gets tackled mm. to the ground and dragged off. He won his court case against the police. So he, wow. I think he sued the police or whatever yesterday and, uh, the result came in, the judge agreed. He had been uh, 
you know, his human rights or whatever mm. had been uh, uh, impinged upon. Um, but this is what happened. And um, uh, as for the future, it is going to take a long time for many people to trust the police again. Uh, it's going to take a long time for uh, people to trust uh, politicians. I am hoping that Dan Andrews gets booted out at the next election and Palaszczuk. I would like to see all the leaders, Scott Morrison is the first one, but all the leaders responsible for the COVID overreach or uh, authoritarianism all get punted. That is the, the best way forward. Mm. Yeah, it worries me that, um, you know, there, there were children that have sort of grown up having experienced this as normal. And my only hope is that we've we've sort of forcibly turned them into little conservatives who fight back against the government with all of the um, skate parks that were closed, with all those things. Hopefully we've put planted the seed in them to be wary of the government and to question the government growing up. Maybe that's the silver lining of all of this is that kids are going to grow up with a bit of a better understanding with the role of the government and how they, the government, how it should function within a society. Because I think Australia as a whole has been quite apathetic with politics. And I think apathy is the silent killer. And I think if you ask a lot of school students, especially like from my generation, like I'm, you know, that sort of generation and even the newer ones, what does the upper house and the lower house mean in parliament? I don't think most people could answer that question. And I think that we're sort of seeing the result of a lack of interest and and, and apathy and um, putting our head in the sand. And, you know, if it doesn't affect um, you as an individual, who, who really cares? And I think maybe there's a turnaround maybe the cogs are going to start turning and maybe we need to start educating kids on the role of the government again particularly in Australia but it'll it'll be interesting to see what happens especially with the kids and especially with their development their cognitive uh, learning was sort of impacted I guess over the last few years but we will see Um, I wanted to ask you a question um, about uh, this uh, South Australia. I'm not sure if you saw, but they're passing a bill through there. You know, one week after the emergency uh, powers or the state of emergency ended for COVID in South Australia, they've now put in a state of emergency for um, co- for climate. And they said it's a climate emergency, but they did sort of stipulate in the fine in the fine print a little caveat there that it doesn't necessarily give the government the same sort of powers that it did with COVID. But for some, like for me, I, that's a red flag because, like any precedent that's set, and like any case law, if you look at legal things, case law is has a lot of weight in in a court system, and and similarly does a precedent and. And history shows that governments grow and that governments tend to take from people far easier than they ever give back. So for me, when I saw that in South Australia, that was a red flag and that made me concerned. And I was concerned that other states would follow suit. And then my concern was, what could this lead to? I'm not sure if you had a similar concern or any thoughts about what happened in South Australia. Yeah, it's more than concern. It's terrifying. Um, the uh, what we've learned from COVID is don't give government emergency powers <laughs> at any cost. Yeah. Just don't give them emergency powers. Sure, okay, maybe if there's an earthquake or a tsunami takes out half of Queensland or something, fine. Um, but the 
relish with it with within with which public servants, bureaucrats, uh, those in authority, such as police forces, medical officers, you know, all of those people, all of those institutions, not the people so much, but the institutions, the uh, relish with which they grabbed these powers and used them was sickening. Um, you know, and it spread right through to to wherever, you know, the local cafe where the, you know, spotty 18-year-old kid behind the counter is saying, put on a mask or you can't come in here or, you know, have you sprayed your hands or have you done this or show us your, your passes, all that stuff. Um, this went right through Australia and should be a warning sign to us all that we are actually not in the, the free larrikin country you mentioned earlier. Uh, we are in a society where there are a very large number of uh, fascists, uh, people who uh, believe that the state is the lord and master and that uh, uh, we should all be subservient to that, uh, the, to the diktats that come from, from above. Uh, I always try and when I talk, you mentioned younger people in politics, um, and whenever I, I talk to them, I always try and explain that the concept of left and right is meaningless, that, that, that no longer exists. There is only one divide in, in all politics, and that's between the individualists and the collectivists, and that's it. Mm. Any issue can quickly be broken down into that. There are people who believe the individual should be paramount uh, and the government and society should be there to let the individual uh, thrive to their best ability, or there are those who believe that the the collective, the state and society or whatever you want to call it, uh, they are supreme and the individual must fit in to, mm. their, to their wants and wills. That's it. That explains every, whether it's climate, COVID, any issue can quickly drill down to that, that choice. And that is the choice in politics now between those who believe in the individual and those who believe in the collective. Unfortunately, I don't know the exact numbers, but it's clear that at least, well, actually the election does tell us at least 30% of Australians are authoritarians mm. and collectivists. 32% I think voted for Albanese and uh, the rest, the uh, the 68% or whatever, are presumably not quite so authoritarian. So that's a good sign. Um, but the authoritarian mentality will, will grab any opportunity to increase the power of the state. And uh, the real danger that we've learned from COVID is that the more invisible the risk, the more dangerous the powers are. Because it's one thing to say, uh, okay, there's, uh, you know, there's bushfires, you know, there's a fire coming down the hill or there's a fire sweeping towards your town or whatever it is. Quick, everybody has to obey the authorities and move out of the way, otherwise someone's going to die in the fires. You know, that's a kind of legitimate use of authoritarian collectivist mentality. Everybody out. We don't care. No, you're not staying. The fire's coming. That's it. You're out. It's an immediate, obvious, visible, temporary threat for which the state has every right to get involved and say, this is the solution. Bang. But when you then go to this, uh, you know, the invisible nature of COVID was what made it so dangerous because it's, uh, yes, it was, it was deadly for the elderly, the 80s and people with comorbidities and so on. Yeah, sure. So many things. 
Um, but the idea that five-year-old kids are being vaccinated or kids are being taken from their school because of this weird kind of, oh, we don't know what it is, where it is, who, oh, you could mm. get it, you could give it, not give it, whatever. You know, what was it, the stupid woman in South Australia? You mentioned South Australia. It tells you them, don't wish to be rude to my South Australian cousins, but any state that has a chief health medical officer that tells you not to catch a football because you're going to catch COVID from it is a state that's got a lot of problems and a state that has some seriously stupid people uh, in authoritarian positions. So what we saw with COVID is the more invisible threat, the more intangible, the harder to pin down and identify, uh, the more dangerous the authoritarian stupidity and the almost, you know, goon-like or Monty Python-like excesses of authoritarianism you see. Now, COVID... I don't know if there's a virus or not a virus, I don't care. But if COVID is intangible, climate is even more intangible. Mm. I mean, wow, what a threat. You know, yeah, any weather event is supposedly proof of it. There's no evidence anywhere that CO2 is heating up the planet to the extent that they say we're all going to be doomed in whatever it is, a thousand days or 12 years or 15 years or 100 years, whatever. It is such an intangible and, and, and so vague and yet portents of such doom that it's the ideal tool for the authoritarian mindset to say, you must do precisely what I say because of all of that. Mm. And that is what makes it so dangerous. And that is, again, without, you know, retreading on what I said earlier, but the anyone who commits to net zero is no better philosophically, intellectually, than Greta Thunberg or the girls or guys who glue themselves to the, to the ground. Uh, the moment you accept that there is an existential threat to the planet due to the emissions of carbon dioxide, then by definition, everything that Extinction Rebellion, the Greens, all this, everything they say is true if you accept that premise. Therefore, you have to do what they say. So if you accept that the planet, we're all going to die, we're all doomed, the Earth's going to burn up in some fire inferno, if you accept all because of the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, if you accept that premise, then yes, you have to go along with every prescription and urgency that the authoritarians say you have to do because there's no alternative. We're talking about the, the, the extinction of humanity. Mm. But if you don't accept that, if you say, come on, I'd like to actually see some proof of the claims or can you actually show me somewhere where these dire events are actually occurring rather than being made up, uh, can you actually show me the science that says that carbon dioxide molecules heat up the planet when they reach X amount rather than X amount using geology or whatever else. If you can show me some of that, but they don't, they refuse. They just keep this vague, invisible, deadly threat and it gives permission to the most authoritarian traits within our country and internationally, which is why we are actually, I wish I shared your optimism, but... I mean, I'm generally optimistic, but I think we are entering a very, very dangerous period where the collectivist authoritarian mentality, governments using excessive force, which we would never have conceived of a few years ago, is ramping up and we have to resist it. We have to say no. Uh, and uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, whether Labor federally 
tries to pull the trick of a climate emergency or any of that stuff over the mm. next three years because they easily could, Evelyn, they easily could. Mm. Uh, let's hope that they've got enough on their plates not to try and pull that trick, but they could. If they've done it in South Australia, they can do it federally. Mm. Yeah, I I am also by nature quite pessimistic. I'm a very much glass half empty sort of person. I blame the 12 years that I served in the police. I saw the worst of society. So I just automatically think that, but I'm trying to better myself and be a little bit more positive and see the silver lining. But good, good. It's, it's funny you mentioned that it's this invisible thing with COVID. I, w- I was told, well, I thought I heard somewhere, Rowan, that, uh, the, that COVID had these big basketball-sized pathogens that just floated through the air and targeted people who were standing and not sitting and that's that's where I must have got my wires crossed along, exactly. along the road You must somewhere. have been watching too many too many TV uh, premieres meetings or chief health right. officers meeting. And, yeah, and exactly. on that, Evelyn, isn't it, isn't it fascinating that uh, only yesterday or the day before, Dr Nick Coatesworth, who was one of the early chief medical officers in New South Wales, or federally, I think he was, I can't remember, who was very gung-ho about we've got to do this, we've got to do that, to his eternal credit, and I, I, he, mm-hmm. someone you should think about getting on, on your podcast, um, you know, he's now saying, whoa, whoa, whoa we, we, there was a lot that we did wrong and then there was a lot where we went okay. too far and we didn't need to do this and let's look now at the proof of masks and let's look at the evidence. Now, if I am going to be optimistic, I would say that we are hopefully in a point now where people are looking back quickly at the evidence and going, well, hang on, Florida, you know, they didn't do any of this stuff and they're fine. Sweden didn't do any of this stuff and they're fine. So did we really need to do all this? Hmm. Uh, I think a lot of people are thinking that and saying that now, but not the politicians. They won't even touch it uh, because the Liberal Party knows and all the premiers Hmm. know the moment uh, people start asking really serious questions, yeah, they've got no answers because it's not as if there weren't people telling them at the time, this is wrong, you don't need to do this. There were plenty of people. Uh, they were mm. just silenced and ignored. Uh, so this is why I keep saying we need a Royal Commission, we need a Royal Commission into the full response to COVID to learn from it. But I don't think we'll ever see that. But hopefully the public are going to be a lot more sceptical next time the collectivists try and impose Mm. this uh, big emergency on us with uh, very little evidence. Well, I think we are seeing those things come to fruition with the monkeypox. Like so many people have seen that and um, I don't Laughed. know. You, yeah, <laughs> yes. and there's like a funny Which meme. Which is the that, only response. Yes. It is. If you don't laugh, Rowan, you have to cry. Um, but there's a funny meme going around where there's a bloke with a banana shoved up his nose. He's like, this is the new PCR test for monkeypox. <laughs> and right. So you can see people are sort of going, come on now. Uh, you can't pull yeah. the wool over like you did before. So that there is good in that. But my, I sort of wanted to finish off with asking you this, um, and it sort of edges back on, it sort of is a blanket over all of these issues, where, whether it be the election, whether it be climate change, whether it be COVID, monkeypox, the war on Ukraine, all of these things. Um, something that we're really struggling with is information and disinformation. 
And something that I've always said is it's usually the absence of objectivity and debate that is the language of the oppressor. And when it comes to a lot of these issues, it's the absence of information or it's censorship that sings the voice of the tyrant. And we've seen that with climate change, like you mentioned, um, if you just want to have a conversation, people can't really engage. And if they do, and you counter them with a different scientist or a different doctor who says that's not accurate, well, you're you're just a Nazi fascist scum. That's not accurate. But no one can just be respectful and objective and impartial and just have these things out on the platter. And I think there is one of the big fractures that we have seen over the last few years is our relationship with media, especially mainstream media, because we saw people that we'd respected then go on, you know, um, on TV and basically say, I don't want you to have a job because you're not vaccinated. All the, all these things. And so a lot of Australians in particular have been confused. Where do we go now to get the right information? Um, where, where do we go? Because we feel like the government's lying to us. We feel like um, the you know politicians are lying to us. We feel like the media are lying to us. We, we feel like, you know, kids probably feel like their parents are lying to them. Like there's just so many fractures in so many different areas. And to be honest, this is where conspiracy theories stem from. This is where all of this um, hatred and rage and and just division between different ideologies and different people, this is where it all comes from. And, um, you know, I don't really blame it for happening because I don't blame people for feeling this way or for questioning everything, for being paranoid because we've kind of set it up that how else do people respond? And I sort of wanted to ask you if you have seen over the last few years a lot of this happening, censorship, disinformation, whether that's something you've felt like you've struggled with yourself and how you would maybe advise people what to do moving forward if they want to get good information about things. Well, that's very easy, Evelyn. Obviously, they read The Spectator Australia <laughs> if they want to get good, yes. honest reporting. Uh, all yeah. throughout COVID, I can't tell you, we had brilliant articles by Rebecca Weiser, Ramesh Thakur, James Allen, others, superb articles looking at the scientific facts, questioning the, uh, the authoritarianism. Uh, all through uh, COVID, we, every week we published, uh, without fear or favour, uh, a lot of sceptical things, pretty much all of which have now come to be shown to be true. I can't think of anything we wrote about that hasn't uh, turned out to be pretty much along the lines of what we were saying at the time. Um, uh, there is a lot of pressure on mainstream media, or there was through COVID, advertisers, you saw that. Um, the I agree with you that I find it difficult now to read a lot of, of, of the mainstream papers. Um, uh, I find that it, 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 putting on my old advertising hat, I'm being kind here. A lot of the stuff you read reads more like advertorials uh, than actual hard-hitting news. Um, but your question uh, to, it, it's a very good question, where do people turn for honest news? Uh, ultimately, social media is a trap. Um, there's a lot of disinformation on social media. There's also a lot of great information on social media. Uh, ultimately, I don't think there's, I think people have to, approach issues with caution. Um, my rule of thumb on social media, if it's like, wow, that's unbelievable, well, it, it's probably unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> um, but equally, if you find writers, uh, commentators, people whose opinion you 
learn to respect and trust, then sticking to them is a pretty good uh, way. Reading what they say on Twitter or social media or whatever is, is your, normally a pretty pretty good way of going. But everyone makes mistakes. Um, you know, journalists can make mistakes. But by and large, the um, I I think you just have to use individual judgment. I mean, it's it's it's. I don't think there's one kind of size fits all. Uh, I think the danger signs are when you have governments and other people uh, saying, "Oh no no no," uh, without any evidence to back them up. Oh no no, so and so is a terrible writer or a terrible person or you know some mad uh, crazy person and you go well hang on I agree with what they're saying follow your instincts and listen to the people you agree with uh, don't be swayed by the mob because the mob is is is, is extremely untrustworthy mm. I don't know if that answers your question Evelyn yeah, no, I think you did. I think personal responsibility is something that we should all really do. And I think the last few years is probably testament that we rely on too many external sources to formulate our own decision making. Um, you know, we, we need to use discernment and we need to use wisdom and we need to actually value personal responsibility and stop looking to other things. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think that's probably the best advice. Look at things and take personal responsibility for what you're consuming, what you believe to be true and use your discernment and wisdom to do those things. So perfect advice. Now, before we, before we wrap up, where can people find you, Rowan? Um, I know obviously I mentioned the Spectator Magazine Australia, but if you could just sort of tell our um, audience where they can find you um, and sort of follow along sure. on your journey. Yes, yeah, so I'm on Twitter at Rowan Dean. Um, the uh, Outsiders every Sunday morning. Uh, I'm also on Sky News shows during the week. And as the editor of The Spectator, you can reach me, editor at spectator.com.au. Um, and, uh, uh, but that's probably enough of me. You can probably fed up with the time I've done Spectator and Outsiders. Um, but uh, social media, just I do a bit of Twitter, but uh, I'm very, um, uh, I'm a little bit wary of social media. There you go. <laughs> it's a double-edged sword without doubt, but I really appreciate you taking the time and coming on here with me today. I've really appreciated your insights, not just today, but for a number of years now. So it's been an honour. So thanks for coming on. Well, equally, Evelyn, I love reading you on social media or on Twitter. I always, always <laughs> listen to what you have to say. It's fantastic. Well done. Keep up the great work. Thanks.